We're going to be, uh, we're, we're continuing in Luke's gospel, but we're skipping ahead just a few passages, not because those passages are unimportant, but primarily so that we don't spend three years going through one book. Because there are other inspired books in the Bible that we want to get to. So, um, but I'll summarize very quickly what we're beginning to see happen. What Luke is showing us is that a storm is brewing and it is brewing around Jesus and the way that people are responding to Jesus. Who is this man? So in chapter 7, we see Jesus heal a centurion's servant and even raise a widow's son from the dead. Uh, he is compassionate and he is powerful. Uh, and yet, the very people that you would... It, it's the, the people who are gathering around Jesus, who are coming to Jesus, are the people that you would least expect. Uh, a Gentile... Uh, the women uh, at the beginning of chapter 8 who give of their livelihoods uh, to support the ministry of Jesus. It's the people who are on the fringes. Uh, the people who don't have a special status uh, in, in this Jewish culture. And it's the people you would most expect to come to Jesus who are rejecting him. It is the religious elite, the rig- religious leaders. They are, they are the most put off by Jesus which brings us to the passage that we're going to look at today. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. If you're using the Bible in the chair, it's on page 864. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, please take that one with you. It's our, our gift to you. But let's look together at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees... You'll remember a, a Pharisee. Uh, Pharisees were a religious party of the day. Uh, they were very influential and they had a very strict view of God's law. Uh, they were uh, exclusivists. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment." Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, "'If this man were a prophet,' He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, because she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay... He canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask for his help in understanding it. Father, would you, our our prayer is really simple. Would you open our eyes, open our ears, give us eyes to see and ears ears to hear and hearts that believe, to understand and to apply your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John Newton may not be a name that you're familiar with. You're probably familiar with his work. He wrote a well-known hymn called Amazing Grace and hundreds of others. Um, What you may not know about Newton is that for most of his life, or at least the first part of his life, he was a pretty rough dude. Uh, He left home at an early age to make his living on the seas, particularly as a slave trader. You uh, You may have heard the old phrase, he cusses like a sailor. Uh, John Newton's mouth was so foul and it was so blasphemous that he actually made other sailors uncomfortable. Uh, that's the kind of person that John Newton was. Um, he was the picture of what Paul describes, uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, the spirit at work in the sons of, of disobedience, uh, following the passions of his flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, by nature a child of wrath. That was John Newton, but God. It's, uh, it's the best phrase maybe in all of Scripture, but God. It's what Paul says next in Ephesians 2.4. But God got a hold of John Newton, terrified him, uh, scared him to death in a storm on the way home, And then wooed him by his grace. And so John Newton would eventually write, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. It was the realization of that grace that uh, would drive Newton for the rest of his life. And it's at least rumored that he said towards the end of his life, When I was young, I knew many things. But now that I am old, I know only two. That I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. And that phrase... I am a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior really captures our passage today. Because we meet a woman 
who crashes a dinner party, who understands those two things. Uh, that Jesus, that, that she is a great sinner and that Jesus is a great savior. And that's what true faith looks like. Jesus tells this woman, your faith has saved you. And so we're gonna, we're gonna see her as a picture of faith. We're gonna take her as an example of what saving faith looks like. And here's the idea, that if you have true faith, if you possess faith like John Newton and faith like this woman, then you will see the greatness of your sin. You won't ignore it, you won't overlook it, you'll see it, it'll move you. You will be uh, frustrated and saddened by it. You will see the greatness of your sin and you will see that Jesus is even greater. Those are, that's what this woman sees and we're gonna, we're gonna walk through this passage. We're gonna look at her faith in three ways. First, faith needs. Second, faith loves. And then finally, faith rests. Faith needs, faith loves, and faith rests. Faith needs. To have true faith is to acknowledge that you have a problem. And it's a problem called sin. You have, in other words, a need, a deep need. Let me, uh, let's, let's just set the scene. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house. And so we should point out that Jesus is a, an equal opportunity, uh, kind of person. He doesn't just eat with the sinners and tax collectors. He also eats when invited with the Pharisees. This was probably a special dinner in his honor. Uh, we say that for two reasons. One, it says that he is reclining at table. Uh, so in the, in the ancient Near East, especially for special occasions like this, you, the table would be a low table on the floor and you would lean on one side and eat this way while your feet went out behind you. You were literally reclining forward at the table. You did that on special occasions. And then there's a second thing that tells us this was probably a special occasion. Uh, it was open to the public. So even uninvited guests, there was a, a, the doors were left open. And so uninvited guests, particularly in this case where a, a visiting teacher, a well-known teacher has been invited for a special dinner, uninvited guests could come in and they could sit, not at the table, but kind of on the periphery and just listen to the conversation. And so this is a, this is a public, uh, special dinner. But as they're eating, in comes this woman. We are not told her name. She is only labeled as a sinner. Twice she is called a sinner. We're not told what her sin is. But she is clearly well known. And she clearly has a reputation. Such a reputation that the host of the dinner, the Pharisee, even doubts that Jesus is a prophet, right? He doubts that Jesus could come from God because clearly if Jesus was from God, he would know what sort of woman this is, what kind of person this is that is touching him. He's clearly, or at least sounds, to be disgusted. He's put off with her. He's put off with Jesus so this woman is a great sinner, and everybody knows it. But here's the key. She knows it too. She knows that she's a great sinner. In fact, she's probably more aware of that than anyone else in the room. 
Why else would she crash the party? Why else would she risk such embarrassment and go to the last place on earth she was expected to go? Well, Luke tells us she goes there because she needs to see Jesus. She hears that He is there and so seeks Him out. She knows her need and she goes to find the only one who can meet it. Now that that conversion, her realization, how exactly she came to understand her need, that that happens off stage, so to speak. We don't ever we don't ever see that. We don't know at what moment she became so acutely aware of her sin, nor how she knew that Jesus is the one who could relieve her. We don't see the moment or the series of moments leading up to this, but we clearly see the evidence in her actions. She has clearly been brought to the end of her rope. She clearly needs a Savior who can help her. And so the first diagnostic question, the first question that that ought to prompt us to ask is, are you needy? Are you desperate? Have you seen your need of a Savior outside of yourself? Has Holy Spirit opened your eyes to the depths of your own sin? The darkness within? And has He opened your eyes to the sweet light of His mercy? That's what happens to this woman. She, she becomes aware of her need and she runs to the one who can meet it. Faith needs. Faith loves. I just want you to think about what an awkward moment this woman created. Jesus is reclining forward. His feet are behind Him. Everyone is eating the meal. There's conversation. No doubt His feet would have been dusty from the road. And in she walks. She walks through the door. No doubt past others who are looking on. So her, her entrance is no secret. Here she is in a Pharisee's home, walking up to a Pharisee's table. And she carries with her this expensive jar full of expensive ointment. She's come to worship Jesus. And I want you to notice that right off the bat, her love her love causes her to recklessly ignore social stigma. She's here for him. So she walks past all of the other people. She doesn't care about the, disembar- the, the, the embarrassment. She doesn't care about the cost. She's come to adore Jesus. And she bends down to anoint him. And she starts weeping. A word used for rain showers. This is no, this is no quiet crying in a corner. This woman is pouring her tears on Jesus' feet. And she's using her hair to wipe them up. This woman is literally cleaning the dust off of Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. How humiliating. And how beautiful. And then she, 
she uncorks or breaks open the bottle and begins pouring out this expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus, honoring him. Only, only love could motivate this kind of action, this kind of devotion. Weeping, wiping, anointing, these are acts of humility and love. These are the actions of a person who knows she is a great sinner and who knows that Jesus, an even greater Savior. Now contrast that with the indifference, we could call it that, the indifference of the Pharisee, the host. He's put off, he's offended that Jesus would let her do this. Clearly doesn't know who she is, but here's the irony. Not only, not only does Jesus know exactly who she is, but he knows exactly what the Pharisee is thinking. Not only is he a prophet, but he's much more. Jesus uses a parable to make a point. Look at verse 41. Jesus hears what, uh, whether Simon says it quietly or he says it in his mind, Jesus responds. Simon, I've got something to say to you. Simon says, say it. And he tells us about a moneylender who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. A denarius was uh, equivalent to one day's wage. It's what you earn for a day's work, or for most people anyway. And so you have two very, very significant, uh, one very large debt and one medium, right? For this person, it would require 500 days of work. For the other, only 50. And so the debts are different. And yet notice that neither one of them can pay. Neither one of them has the ability to meet their debt. And so the moneylender cancels the debt of both, freely forgives it. And then here's the hook. Jesus says, so Simon, which one of those two debtors would love the moneylender more? And I think Simon knows he's caught. Because he says, well, I suppose, I suppose... It would be the one with the greater debt. And Jesus says, yep, you got it. And then he takes that parable and he applies it to the situation happening in the room right there. He, he contrasts the two people who have responded to Jesus. Now there's some debate as he compares the two, what Simon has not done versus what the woman has done. Uh, whether a host would have done all of the things, uh, was that required? Was it expected? There's some debate there, but basically, even if it wasn't expected for Simon to wash Jesus' feet, it heightens uh, what the woman does all the more. And so, he makes three comparisons, right? In each case, Simon shows little to no love, while the sinful woman lavishes her love. In the ancient Near East, in, in, uh, in Israel... Uh, you walked a lot on foot. Um, not everybody had, you, you, you didn't have a lot of animals, you certainly didn't have a lot of carts, and definitely didn't have automobiles, and so your feet would be dirty. And if you went to a feast at someone's house, usually, especially at a more well-to-do home, you'd have a servant there who would wash the feet of uh, the people who came. Um, but Simon provides no water for Jesus' feet. Simon doesn't wash Jesus' feet, but this woman 
cleans Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. A kiss on the cheek would have been a common greeting. Simon offers none. And yet this woman will not stop kissing Jesus' feet. Olive oil was common, inexpensive, plentiful. And so if you had a special guest of honor, it wasn't altogether strange that you would have honored that person by anointing their head with oil. It wasn't very costly. And yet Simon didn't even do that. Yet here this woman brings expensive perfume. Very hard to come by. It would have probably been something like a family heirloom. And she pours it out on Jesus. All of this makes it very clear who loves and who does not. Who understands their debt and who does not. Jesus puts it this way in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. So she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Here's the point. How much love you showed to Jesus is directly tied to how much you think you've been forgiven. She knows her debt. And she knows that it has been cancelled. And so she loves. But if you think your debt is small, if you think, well, what other people have done to me, what I've done is really no comparison to what others have done to me, my debt, eh, it's a small thing. I'm, I'm grateful, I guess, that God has forgiven me. If your view of your sin is small, then your love for God will be Small. It's a dangerous place to be. True faith understands the great debt of sin and the greater gift of forgiveness. And love pours out as a result. Faith needs, faith loves, faith rests. Look at verse 50. Jesus assures this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's let's use some parallel words. Instead of faith, let's say trust. It's a parallel. It's a synonym. And instead of saved, let's say rescued. Jesus looks at this woman and says, Your trust has rescued you. Jesus tells this great sinner that God has rescued her because... She has trusted Him. And this is important. She is not rescued, she is not saved by her devotion. It is not the weeping, it is not the wiping, it is not the anointing that saves this woman. All of those humble, beautiful acts of love come out of her faith. They, they, are not, they come out of her salvation. They are not the ground of her salvation. The tears and ointment aren't what saves her. They are simply her response. It is her trust. Her trust in the God who works for her. Her trust in the only one who can forgive her. She understands she cannot pay her own debt. 
So she cannot trust in herself. She has to throw herself on the mercy of the only one who cancels debt. The only one who can forgive sin. She must rest. She must rest herself in Jesus. And notice what else she receives as a result. Jesus says, go in peace. Peace. Even when I say the word, the very, the very mention of the word makes me ache because of its absence. Right? When the Bible talks about sin, it uses words like separation, hostility, enmity. That to be a sinner is to be at war with God. And maybe you've never thought about it that way. But that's the way the Bible describes that we are enemies of God. Romans 5. We are at war with Him. And so when Jesus forgives sin, He grants peace. The war is over. There is no more hostility. There is no more war between you and God So no wonder this woman feels free to lavish love on Jesus. Maybe you've seen uh, pictures of uh, of V-Day when World War II ended. How did how did we respond when when the final uh, when the final treaties were signed? What did we do? We paraded through the streets, right? Sailors kissed their fiancés. There was smiles everywhere. Even still today. I just read a news story the other day of, in Holland. They still ce- celebrate. Um, guys dress up in World War II uniforms and they parade through the streets remembering the day when Nazi Germany's grip was broken. Right? We celebrate. No wonder this woman celebrates because of the peace that she has been given. Friends, let's learn from this sinner. See your debt. See how great it is. And see that you can't pay it. That you need another. To borrow from the hymn, the old hymn, Rock of Ages, not the labors of your hands can fulfill His law's demands. Could your zeal no respite know? Could your tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. He must save, and Him alone. When Jesus forgives her sin, how do the people around the table respond? Who is this? Now that question may be a skeptic's question. Kind of a, who does he think he is? Who is this? Forgiving sin. But that's really the crucial question, isn't it? Who is this? Who is this man who claims to have the ability to do what only God can do? If warfare is with God, then only God is the one who can cause the hostility to cease. He's the one who has to make peace. Who is this? And of course... He's God. 
He's the one who's come into the world to make peace by the shedding of His own blood. That's who He is. And He alone is the one who can save. Come to Him. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. Let's pray. O oh Lord, that we would be like this dear woman, this dear sister whose name we don't even know, but whose actions speak louder, speak a thousand words, whose humble, beautiful devotion is amazing and convicting to me. Oh Lord, move us. Move us by helping us to see the depth of our sin, our need, what You've done to meet it. And then may we live lives that pour out in constant adoration because of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond to Jesus through the giving of our gifts. Just